How would you define the Middle Ages or the medieval era? When did it start? When did it end? And what happened? The Middle Ages, I think, is something that all of us have learned for history class multiple times, but have forgotten everything about right after the exams. And what is the Middle Ages? Uh, the Dark Ages, the name applies. It's sad, nothing that much happens. Oh, I think. And then after that is the Renaissance, where everyone's like so artsy and with the wine. Okay, so this quote might make us laugh a little bit. But it's a real answer that I got from a real student of mine when I asked her what she knew about the Middle Ages. As anyone who has tried to teach the medieval period to introductory college students knows, when you ask your students on that first day of class what they know about the time period, we often get similar answers. Jousts and churches, unwashed or unhygienic people, the Black Death. But when you ask them when the medieval period was, when it started, how long it lasted, you often get blank stares. What any instructor of the early period knows is that students don't come into these classes really knowing about the Middle Ages and its history. They come into the class having absorbed instead the most emblematic moments of an imagined European culture. They come bearing narratives mediated through quasi-medieval films, Game of Thrones, fantasy games, and modern cultural values. It's instead the most simplistic, heroic, and even propagandistic narratives that are the ones that get passed down and embedded into our students' memory and cultural ideas about the past, the Crusades and the quote-unquote Muslim invaders, or the rise of European nationalism through the Arthurian myths. And, as teachers and experts on a more complex and nuanced medieval culture, it's our jobs to really root our students' beliefs about the past in history, in texts, and in values as much as possible, and to challenge where these core narratives deviate from reality into fantasy. Of course, most of us already know this from our own classrooms, and we all have our own ideas about how to combat medieval misconceptions. But I want to propose today that for many of us, trained in Euro-American institutions and with predominantly Euro-American students, our teaching toolkit has developed in a way that specifically targets Western students and Western institutions. In an effort to make teaching and pedagogy more global in both perspective and audience, I want to talk today about how our toolkit can translate into teaching outside of a Euro-American context and to students who are not predominantly Euro-Americans. I want to inquire what needs to change in our pedagogy when we consider a non-Western institutional context and what teaching outside of the West can illuminate for us as scholars of a truly global medieval era. So, some helpful background here. My observations in this podcast are going to be based on my own experiences uh, teaching a global medieval survey course at the 100 level at a Sino-American university in Shanghai, China. 
The course was supposed to be a global seminar on literature, art, and culture between 800 and 1700 CE. And it was part of a three-course sequence walking students in the liberal studies program through history, from antiquity to the medieval period to modernity. The curriculum within which I've been teaching is a global perspectives program, and it requires a really broad range of texts written both in and outside of English, and from a variety of regions and genres. This program is typically run out of the New York campus, though in this case it was imported to the Shanghai campus during the COVID-19 pandemic for a go-local program in which students accepted to an American campus who couldn't travel from China came to Shanghai and received the same instruction or curriculum. And this contrasted really greatly with my previous experience teaching. When I had previously taught comparative medieval courses, it had been at a small liberal arts school in the American South uh, or at a large research one institution in the American Northeast and predominantly to white American students. What's interesting to me, at least, uh, is what happened when I started this class on the first day by asking the same question that I always do. What is the Middle Ages and what do we know about it? To my non-Western students, all of whom were Chinese native speakers and had been raised outside of the West. When I came in on the first day to ask this question, I assumed, perhaps naively, that I would hear an answer that was somehow different uh, from what my previous students in the Euro-American context had told me, or that I would hear an answer that was somehow less rooted in the European or more Eastern, quote-unquote, in perspective. I was wrong. So when I asked this question of my students in Shanghai, this is what they told me. If you see a piece of art that looks European and the coloring is generally very morbid with um, religious imagery and deformed babies and animals and is generally just like really ugly it's probably from the middle ages um i think i would define the middle ages as like just this time period before logic or reason was like a big thing and before good art and music was made so it's just generally pretty morbid and ugly and sad and people were kind of poor. Serfdom is bad and um, plagues are bad and to practice hygiene. I know Black Plague and also I know uh, Poi Dante, I guess. Um, I would say for the definition, I would try to define it as a long period of time basically in Europe and before before the time of Renaissance. About the Middle Ages, I know that um, the Black Death happened um, during this time, this era. And also um, at this point, <clears throat> um, Europe has been very religious. And I, what is the Medieval Ages? I think it's just this time interval before the renaissance but after the like the ancient greeks and like the after the barbarians like um had their whole 
a whole new um, establishment of of like their own empires and stuff like it's just sort of the time interval between the really um not modern people and the more bougie seeming and like intelligent like enlightenment people sort of time interval like if i were to just imagine the the medieval ages like i would think of churches and you know like all those very um typical like christian stuff so maybe learning about the middle ages could you know like expand my um sight and stuff as a chinese student Essentially, they gave me the same answers about jousts, lights on horseback, the Crusades, the Christian Church, and other emblems of European medieval culture. In essence, this boils down to me to two big levels of significance. On one hand, I think that they told me what they thought I wanted to hear about the Middle Ages, as a visibly foreign instructor teaching them about the medieval period I think that they assumed, and rightly, that my training was primarily in the Western European tradition. But more than that, I think too that they also associated the medieval period with the same Western European emblematic narratives we talked about earlier. Of course, these students' emotional engagement with emblematic or propagandistic European narratives has to be different. As medieval scholars, many of us have begun to focus more time and energy in the classroom on combating narratives of white supremacy, and rightfully so. We focus on making sure that our students will go out into the world without assuming that the medieval West was a bastion of white culture, and ensuring that medieval history and the kind of things we represent in our classrooms don't lend themselves to a white supremacist reading of history or this nostalgic longing for a quote-unquote white past. We look, for example, to the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, where neo-Nazi marchers carried flags with medieval runes and the phrase Deus Volt. And similarly, we notice that prominent white supremacists like Richard Spencer, who advocate for the reestablishment of an idealized white Europe, earned their degrees in English literature. As instructors of medieval studies, our responsibility is to present a view of the medieval world that is more diverse and more nuanced than the false narrative of a, quote, white Europe. But when we're teaching in non-U.S. institutions and outside of the West to an audience entirely made up of non-white students, what is our responsibility and our focus in such classrooms? My students and others seem to have absorbed the foundational European narratives that we are actively trying to combat in our U.S. students, at least as evidenced by some of these interviews. But the emotional investment that my Chinese students have in them is quite different. For example, my Chinese, Taiwanese, Malaysian, Japanese students are unlikely to advocate for the reestablishment of an idealized white Europe, although they may assume, and this is critical, that when I say medieval culture, I really mean white medieval culture. In many ways, it seems to me that this 
is the assumption that leads to my students' sometimes distinct lack of emotional investment in the Middle Ages. It's because the Middle Ages are seen as a byword for, quote, white nationalism. And so in what ways can it be relevant, meaningful, or exciting to a classroom of students for whom such values hold really little sway? For example, when asking one of my students whether it was important to take a medieval survey course as a Chinese student, he said this. It is not very important for Chinese students to learn about the Middle Ages as it's not culturally relevant, nor like modern. As medieval scholarship has more and more attempted to decenter the West and move towards a global and multidisciplinary approach, we often ask ourselves, how do we mimic this move in the classroom? This question and its suggested solutions, however, usually presuppose a primarily Western or English native speaking population of students uh, or courses situated within a US or European institutional context. Instead, my question today is, how do we answer such questions when it comes to non-Western and especially non-US institutions? What about English second language students? How can we make the medieval and early modern periods meaningful to an audience that shouldn't be expected to center Western cultural narratives, texts, or history? These questions seem to me to be essential as we consider decolonizing the canon, but also as we consider building a truly inclusive and global pedagogy that speaks to a really broad range of diverse students. Informed by student perspectives uh, and practical observations, I want to propose here today some strategies that might help us to do so, ranging from the broadest curricular or design levels uh, to more specific classroom strategies and materials that we can use to make our work more accessible. In doing so, I will suggest that we need to revisit not only how we conceive of the medieval tradition, but also the idea of authority in the classroom and authority in the text or language instruction itself. Let's jump in. One of the challenges of taking a truly global approach to medieval studies is inherent in the term medieval itself. On the second day of class, I encountered this when I asked students when the Middle Ages was. I'm used to parsing through a variety of answers, many of which confuse the medieval with the ancient or the early modern. And similarly, I'm used to having discussions about this question that generally problematize the idea of periodization. How do we truly differentiate between the world before and after the Battle of Baden Hill, for example? How do we generalize about the medieval period when Italy reaches their Renaissance hundreds of years earlier than the English Tudor era? But this particular discussion went down a different path. As we began the conversation, students pretty quickly latched onto the root of the word. Medieval comes from the Latin for middle and is therefore a middle period. The question that these students asked, however, was that, and that became the foundation for a vigorous group discussion, was the middle of what? 
Traditionally, the medieval period has been seen as a midway point between the classical or ancient cultures of Greece and Rome and the modern era. This three-part structure of history is inherently Western-centric in that it relies upon the mythology of Western culture that originates with Petrarch's idea of the Dark Ages, the gap between the civilization of the classical era and his own. It's a way of thinking about the arc of history that relies on a timeline looking back to what the West sees as its cultural roots, ancient Rome and ancient Greece, and one that sees the shift towards progress or civilization as beginning with Western innovations and expansionism. So when my students, 100% of whom are mainland Chinese citizens, and who come from a country with 4,000 years of history, ask about this middle period, it raises for me a far more interesting question. In a global class, does the idea of the medieval era even work as an organizational structure? Or does it inherently perpetuate a view of history that looks to the West for its roots? As we talked more about this, we thought a lot about how history was divided or constructed across cultures. To give a super simple example, broadly, we might divide Japanese cultural history into four main periods, the classical, the feudal, the early modern, and the modern, or we might call it the Heian, the Shogunate, the Edo, and the modern. But this is a four-part model rather than a three-part one. Nonetheless, Japan is widely considered to have a medieval tradition, given its development of a feudal system and a warrior elite class that parallels in many ways the Western European medieval context, even without direct contact to the West. But if we use the Western definition of a thousand year medieval era from the late fifth century to the late 15th century, this overlaps with both the classical or Heian period and the feudal or shogunate period. So as my students wondered, what makes something into the medieval era? Must it be in the middle, at a moment of transition, disturbance, or the overturning of assumptions on the way to modernity? Is calling something medieval really about the time period itself, a certain set of years in which the medieval is said to take place? Or is it about specific cultural markers and practices? If it's about practices, what are those, and how do we define them? As we discussed this more, the questions started to hit a little closer to home for my students. Chinese history dates back over 4,000 years. Does China have a medieval period? Sure, if we define it as a specific set of dates, the Chinese dynasties of the Tang, Song, Yuan, and Ming all overlapped in some ways with the West's medieval period. Are these a middle period, though? If we even use the most simplified model of the Chinese dynastic system, we have 13 dynasties. The Tang through the Ming dynasties are towards the end of this history. And if we're defining medieval as a set of cultural or developmental markers instead of time, what are those markers? And do they align with those four specific dynasties or rather earlier ones? If we are trying to reach a truly global medieval course, we must first grapple with the boundaries of the term itself. Where do traditionally underrepresented areas uh, and alternative models of measuring history fit into this? What does it truly mean when we say medieval studies?
Can we describe East Asia, the Americas, or Aboriginal Australia, for example, as having a medieval period? And if not, what are we excluding inherently from our idea of the medieval? My Chinese students then are being asked to take a course with a model of history that is at best unfamiliar to them, that feels foreign from the start and lacks emotional investment. At worst, it's an imposition of historical models and historical values that threaten to subordinate non-Western art and culture to Western standards of medievalism. The next step then is figuring out how to teach to our students' needs and to represent the importance of studying the past while also building the broadest tent possible for a global pedagogy. This step would be, in my mind, to ask the students themselves to answer these questions and to shape the boundaries of their own learning. Given the constraints of this particular course and the course sequence it operated within, our class ended up using the time period markers that were passed down to us. But at a broader curricular level, we need to ask ourselves what we really mean by the medieval period and how we can engage our students in shaping the boundaries of that nearly thousand year period. Allowing students to explore and make these choices for themselves might create more work for us, I won't lie. We will need to work harder to become familiar with and engage with a variety of cultural traditions from the religious or philosophical traditions of the Islamic Empire to the practices of the Chinese Yuan dynasty imported with their conquest of the Song. After all, many of us are still being trained in primarily medieval European cultures. And even for those of us whose training goes beyond Europe, we will often specialize in only one or two specific areas in our graduate study. But this approach of letting students dictate some of these questions and some of these boundaries for themselves would let diverse and global students map themselves more immediately into medieval study. It would allow them to approach unfamiliar cultures with curiosity rather than being imposed upon and even let them discover for themselves the disciplinary challenges of studying the Middle Ages. Up till now, this has been a broad view of what I found in trying to design the course. But let's move beyond the theoretical level and talk about some more scenarios that might help us formulate more practice. One of the challenges of diversifying a curriculum and making a global medieval study is how to do this practically. I always go to workshops and leave dissatisfied feeling that I haven't received a lot of good practical advice. We often get stuck in these workshops in the theory of it all and struggle with concrete ways to do this work. Part of this stems from each class and each instructor being unique and having unique needs, but I think still we can do better with suggesting some specific challenges and solutions in the classroom. Let me give you here three scenarios that I found meaningful from my own teaching. Scenario number one, I'm being observed as I teach by a colleague that has nearly a decade of teaching experience in China. The students do quite a bit of work in their small groups today, working through passages from Chaucer's The Miller's Tale 
and close reading for evidence of our big questions. Whose perspective does the text ask us to take? And who's given the most sympathy or the most blame? What are the ethics of the fabliaux genre, if there are any? And how do they counteract the system of ethics, blame, and responsibility that we see in earlier chivalric texts? When class is over, I meet with my colleague to go over his thoughts. One of his first questions is, I notice that a lot of your students speak in Mandarin with each other during group work. In my classes, I make sure that all the language of instruction is in English and that they are all speaking completely in English during class time. Otherwise, they're going to rely on their native language and not learn as much. You're doing them a disservice by not asking that they do all argumentative or critical work in the language of the university. Maybe I'm picking on this particular colleague a little bit, but the attitude here isn't unusual. I have another colleague who suggested once that his all Chinese students' ability to socialize in English was stunted and that he worried about his responsibility to quote, correct some of these behaviors. Sure, the language of the university is English. When we get to classroom discussion, I speak English and so do my students. The reading and writing work that they all do is also in English, and I've had ample opportunities to assess their English level. Not that I want to. These students are all more fluent in the target language of the university than I will ever be in my second or third language. Put another way, this interaction raised the question for me. Why do we assume that all the best work to be done on these topics is work being done in English? or work being done in our students' second or third languages. Some of this, of course, has to do with creating an immersive environment. Nonetheless, it comes down to the idea of decentering not only the curriculum, but the methods by which we teach a medieval studies class. It comes to the question of whether, as a Western teacher, I want to prioritize my students' understanding of the text and ability to engage with a text that even to native speakers is quite difficult to grasp, or whether I see my job as prioritizing language acquisition. And even more so, thinking about this conversation has impacted not only the way I think about my pedagogy with my Chinese students, but also about how I teach medieval studies to all students. In my view, many of us medievalists fall in victim to our own biases, whether we're teaching Western or non-Western students, native or non-native speakers. We see the work that we ask students to do as needing to be narrowly academic focused and see popular culture, reading aids, or other avenues that ease our students into the unfamiliar materials as somehow lessening or cheapening their value. And I will admit that I myself have an emotional attachment to Chaucer in his original form. And the idea of teaching Chaucer in a modern English translation hurts my soul a little bit. But why should this be? Why should we expect intro level, survey level students to be able to enter into these texts or this history at the same level that we do, as someone who has received advanced training to do so? And why do we look down on these practices when they ultimately help us accomplish our goals? Raising student understanding of these texts, emphasizing their beauty, their importance, and creating more enthusiasm about the period and its works. 
Teaching the medieval era should use any tools available to us that allow our students to engage with, analyze, and examine the culture, the value systems, and the literary meaning deeply. So, when I teach Chaucer to native speakers, why not provide a dual-facing edition for the first few readings? We can build pedagogies that expose us to the original Middle English and see the original forms, but also increase learning and understanding. Not only are these essential for non-native speakers, but they're also pedagogically useful for all students, English speaking or otherwise. And frankly, if I don't provide these aids and ensure that they are good resources, I know my students will at best look up a bad translation on their own. At worst, they just won't read it. We don't expect our students to be able to read Dante, Chrétien de Troyes, or Ovid in the original. We provide translations and we read Old French, for example, as its own language with different rules from the modern language. I didn't study Old French until graduate school. So why should we give primacy and intellectual weight to Middle English over any other language in the canon? With my English second language students, I make sure to provide high quality translations, usually dual facing, and I encourage them to use summaries or reading aids alongside their readings to maximize comprehension. I also let them speak Mandarin in small group work and WeChat groups so that they can use whatever tools they have to help each other get more invested and critical of the text. Scenario number two. I'm in the early stages of the course where I'm still solidifying the order of the readings and how I want to pair pieces into different units. I have a conversation with a friend about how to make this class as comparative as possible. As I'm talking about a unit on chivalry and the manners or behavioral codes that govern aristocratic societies, he makes a comment that haunts me. There's a danger, he says, to this comparative approach, despite all your best efforts here. When you compare texts, the basis, the organizing matrix of that comparison usually draws on our own familiarity, on our own training and cultural mores. So, are you ultimately always returning to Western-centric values? If you start with Western versions of chivalry, then compare that to Japanese Bushido, do you inherently suggest in some way that the Western version is the originary or the primary concept, to which others are at best a historical revision, at worst only meaningful through the prism of its comparison to the Western version? Does this ultimately reinforce the white nationalist or Western-centric originary fantasy in insidious ways. When I hear this, it raises the question, is there a way to be truly comparative? That is, to present texts with equal weight and equal cultural significance, without implicitly making one culture more meaningful or primary than the others? I don't know if there's an easy answer to this question, at least not within the confines of this podcast. And I don't know if the class that I taught even fully disentered the West in the way I had hoped it would. After all, I was trained as a comparatist, but primarily within Western Europe, and so my theoretical background and my biggest enthusiasm is all rooted in European texts. But I'd like to suggest some questions and ideas that we might use to approach course planning and thus at least start this process. First, 
When we track influence, origin, and intersections between cultures, how should we approach this? For example, when we look at medieval Arabic poetry and philosophy and its influence on the troubadour poems, do we begin with the origin, quote-unquote, place and move to its influences, especially if the origin point is non-Western? Do we begin with the pieces that are more familiar to our student and move to the less familiar pieces? How does the order of what we present to our students affect their interpretation of the centrality of the West in the comparison? And second, when you're comparing cultures that have similar or evocative practices but aren't necessarily in contact with each other, what if, rather than starting with what you yourself are most familiar with as an instructor, you started with your students' knowledge instead and moved from their most familiar culture to least familiar. In a unit on the rules and codes of behavior that govern the medieval period, for example, can you start with an excerpt from The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, one of the four classic Chinese novels that trace dynastic instability and the multi-generational struggle for power within the court during the Warring States period? Most of my students had already read this piece in some form during their Chinese classes in high school and were, in many ways, more familiar than I with this text and its cultural significance. But it gave us a fascinating vantage point into their perspectives and knowledge about classical Chinese systems of power, one's responsibilities to one's emperor, to one's parents, and to the opposite sex. My students could get to teach me about their own frame of reference into the time period and then I can use those perspectives to help get them into the question of chivalry, comitatus, bushido, and courtly rules when we get to the Western or to the Japanese texts. Let's regroup. In many ways, what I'm advocating for in this podcast is a decentering in two ways. One, we need to decenter ourselves as the authority or the autoritas in the classroom. I'm advocating that we move towards making the study of the medieval period a more communal, inclusive space in which our students help us to populate the topics and significance of our study. Of course, we will need to exert some influence on a class and bring our expertise to the table. But should we ourselves be the center of the course, or can we find ways to center our students' experiences, heritage, backgrounds, and interests? Can this provide us an inroad into a period that might feel difficult to understand, far away, culturally unfamiliar, or worse, irrelevant? And secondly, in any attempt to teach a truly global medieval studies, we also need to decenter or really critically examine our idea of what constitutes quote-unquote meaningful academic material. We need to engage with as many of the possible resources as we can to make connections and raise enthusiasm for examining the links between cultures, even if they are adaptations, translations, rewritings, or hobbyist material. We can use these materials, even if they have flaws or misinterpretations of the period, to complement our reading of the primary sources, to challenge Hollywood's Middle Ages, or to confront what teleological stereotypes we have about the past and how they're disproven by our original materials. We need, ultimately, 
to leverage our students' interests and familiarities in order to make the unfamiliar understandable. To this point, I have one final scenario that stood out to me this past semester. During my chivalry Bushido codes of conduct unit, a quiet student named Shin Chen approached me. He told me that he loved the class, not because of my teaching, he was quick to say, and cutting me to my core, uh, but because he was deeply interested in what he called HEMA, Historical European Martial Arts. He met with a group regularly to discuss historical European combat techniques, practice reenactments, and do specialized research. Shinchen became, if not my best student, then my most enthusiastic student for the second half of the semester. He brought in his reenactment gear and talked about the different types of combat in front of the class. He filmed a recreation of what he imagined the fight between Kratian's Lancelot and Meliagant would have looked like for a creative rewriting project. He helped other students do research into historically accurate practices and critiqued film representations of medieval culture based on his knowledge. He brought an enthusiasm and excitement to the course that was contagious to others and allowed us to do the more rigorous work. We should be wary then of discouraging that enthusiasm or seeing it as less meaningful because we are blinded by our desire to teach only the quote, most authentic sources. Instead, we can use these well-loved, if potentially inaccurate pieces of cultural knowledge and adaptation to dig more deeply into the real historical global medieval. If we can find a balance between ourselves, our own training and our students' backgrounds, heritage and interests, then we can begin the difficult work of teaching a truly inclusive global medieval survey to students not only in Western institutions, but to all students. I want to take a quick minute of this recording to thank the people who did extra work to help me craft this podcast uh, during a citywide lockdown in Shanghai for several months. A big thank you and shout out to all the students who responded to my questions by recording audio for me in their bedrooms, including Brian Liu, Yolanda Wang, Julia Chang, James Cott, and Doris Jack. I'm also really appreciative to Dr. Megan Kelly Harold for her perspective on teaching comparative classics in China, and to Professor Kelly Donovan for her help thinking about translanguaging and her patience as a non-specialist with me talking about Chaucer. And finally, a huge thanks to Dr. Adam Yagi, who listened to me jabber about these topics for several months, despite being an Americanist by training, who is the one who asked me the big question about my comparative methods and significantly shaped the direction that this podcast took. This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season 1 was produced by Jonathan Correa Reyes, Rita Mera, and Logan Quigley, with music by Anna O'Connell. For more information on the Multicultural Middle Ages, follow the links in our episode description, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button to keep up with new episodes.